I think uh, the revivement of the Hebrew language uh, has really been put forward by the creation of the State of Israel. Would a Hebrew speaker, modern Hebrew speaker, let's say, understand a Yiddish person or a person that speaks Ladino? The script is probably the only thing connecting modern Hebrew to those languages. You may have a few words which you will find understandable, but overall the language itself is almost fully Germanic in the case of Yiddish and Latin in the case of Ladino. We have both met in Madeira and uh, I'm just curious to know what has brought you here. Of all places I have traveled before, many of which were absolutely great, but were missing just something to feel like home. Portugal was the first one to kind of answer that need of balance between every single aspect of what makes me feel home in a new foreign country. Good afternoon, Bogdan. Good afternoon, good to see you. Yeah, finally we are able to record our conversation. I have been waiting for this for quite a long time. It's my pleasure and yeah, it's about time. We live quite close to each other, so it's time to be involved in this beyond uh, just uh, crossing each other in the hallway of our uh, little uh, condominium. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So maybe let's begin with the fact that we have both met in Madeira. And uh, I'm just curious to know what has brought you here. Out of all places, you have decided to stay here. So how come Madeira? Due to my life and work, I was traveling extensively throughout the last 15 years. So as you mentioned, I lived in over 35 countries, and that basically means that every three months on average for the past 15 or 17 years, I would live in a different place. And for the longest period during that time, I was trying to find the perfect spot, the perfect place to call home. And when you get spoiled by so many incredible cultures, so many incredible places, and your bar gets higher, it gets harder and harder to find that place which just ticks all the boxes perfectly. So one day I was invited to a conference called Web Summit in Lisbon. I was a visitor and uh, had a great time in Portugal. Generally felt like of all places I have traveled before, uh, many of which were absolutely great, but were missing just something to feel like home. Portugal was the first one to kind of answer that need of balance between every single aspect of what makes me feel home in a new foreign country. And after spending uh, some time in Lisbon post the conference, I was very keen on seeing that beautiful place I once saw on a video called Madeira. And basically on a whim between my uh, meeting in Malta, which came forward and uh, the end of the conference in Lisbon, I spent in Madeira expecting nothing and the place just blew me away. In those four days, I felt like I found a gem, a place which until recently was populated only by either locals or an elderly population from the UK and Germany, not utilized by any remote workers or young people. And it was a pity because I could see people just like myself at the prime of their career, relocating, living, enjoying a place which is so full of life, so full of nature, such an incredible civilization that's combined with the slush greenery all around you. So although I continued traveling for a few years after my first visit to this beautiful place, I definitely was continued thinking about it. And my dream was one day to come over and maybe convince one or two good friends to join. And the place is so incredible that those two people would be all I need for all my needs met and total happiness for a base to call home. When the pandemic happened, and that was fast forward a couple of years, three, four years to be exact, it was an opportunity since Madeira decided to be the only green zone in all of Europe, meaning less regulations, less uh, restrictions, no um, overall isolation requirements. 
And I had an idea of basically bringing all those interesting people I've met throughout 15 years of traveling around the world to this magical island, which I was always talking about ever since visiting for the first time, to a single location, a single hotel, which we rent together and make our big apartment. So we're technically flatmates who spend <laughs> even the curfew hours together. So once that idea came to be, I made a deal with one of the largest hotels in Europe, which is called the Savoy Palace uh, in Madeira, and brought a lot of those friends and clients and people I was collaborating with, lawyers and otherwise from all around the world, to Madeira, uh, to be exact, 248 people, uh, where we shared this experience for six months. And that basically solidified the first attempt to make Madeira a place for remote workers, digital nomads, individuals who are in the prime of their career, working remotely, and can enjoy the benefit of living on this island. Wow, so this actually began just uh, spontaneously uh, because you wanted to see the island for what it is. And then uh, this great idea came to you because you have noticed that it's lacking this diaspora, this age group of people living here. And from what I know and what I have heard, we are like uh, more or less the first generation of uh, young adults or maybe people in their 30s who have decided to relocate, live and work here, and uh, of course, do that remotely. So of course, uh, the whole island as a place is great for uh, remote workers or digital nomads. Uh, it's beautiful location to stay, but I guess there's something else that makes it appealing for digital nomads. You have already mentioned the lack of regulations, uh, which are to do with uh, the COVID. Uh, but also probably there's another kind of a layer that made it suitable for people to work and live here. Is there such a layer? And if so, what kind of layer is it? Absolutely. So one of the things which, well, is the main part of our business is taxes. What we do is make sure that entrepreneurs and remote workers don't or pay as little as possible in tax while moving to locations which they choose to live at and combine that tax optimization with the immigration to the right location. And throughout moving around for 15 years, scouting for the best locations, the best programs, the best tax optimization methods, Portugal has always been on top and Madeira took it to the next level. So if you are a foreigner with an existing line of work or business which structures themselves right and move to Madeira or all, all of Portugal but Madeira has some unique uh, advantages which I'll expand on in a little bit uh, you basically are eligible to live tax-free for 10 years in one of the most beautiful places in the world but without any strings attached so not only does Portugal allow for that leniency towards entrepreneurs moving to the country. They're also very much acceptant on people migrating. They are very keen on issuing visas to young entrepreneurs and are helping us actively. The government is actively helping us in recruiting and finding and scouting for and moving really talented and uh, promising people to this country. So I wonder if there's a lot of uh, money gathered by taxes. So countries use taxes to actually gather money and then use that money in other different kind of locations, which are necessary for the country to develop. If they are encouraging a tax-free type of a lifestyle, what do you think is the benefit for Portugal as a country to invite young, uh, talented people to work and live without paying too many taxes. So is there some kind of a rationale? Is it attracting talents that will stay here? It's a little bit hard for me to wrap my head around about the logic behind this. 
So you must think both short-term and long-term. On the long term, they understand that people who have built a life here and have enjoyed that benefit for 10 years are unlikely to move away and will probably contribute the country way more by having that pathway to a higher chance of success in the beginning of their business endeavors so that they can contribute timefold what they could if they would have paid taxes to begin with. The second thing you must remember is that taxation doesn't end at a corporate or personal level. You have consumption taxes, you have real estate mm -hmm. taxes, you have a bunch of taxes, even on things you would not normally consider as tax, which are augmented by providing high net worth individuals a pathway to come to Portugal, to invest, to consume, to hire people, to open offices, to start businesses. So if a person comes to Portugal and employs five people, those five people's salaries are still taxed. So you might not have a large corporate tax, but that incentivizes you to bring your business to Portugal to begin with. So even though uh, a tax-free lifestyle sounds great. There are more intricacies uh, towards it. And of course, then you have to do your own research or find a professional that could help you to, to, to get a proper understanding. And as I understand, Untax.com is the company that actually does this. And uh, because uh, I haven't yet mentioned that uh, one of your native languages is Hebrew. Right. And uh, that is the national language of Israel, the Correct. state language. And uh, in one of our conversations, you have mentioned to me that actually a lot of Israelis are also moving to live in Portugal. So from what I understand, uh, from what I have gathered, uh, you also help them with the residency, uh, with the knowledge, how to navigate the, the legal system, the bureaucratic system. And uh, are there many differences in the way of bureaucracy in Israel and uh, the way of bureaucracy in Portugal? I think from the standpoint of immigration, Portugal is a very pro-immigration country, which makes it easy for foreigners of third party countries, not including the EU, uh, to get an easy pathway to relocate to Portugal. Now, in Israel, that's not exactly the case. When it comes to taxes, I actually think that those two are quite similar, simply for the reason that both Israel and Portugal provide a 10-year tax-free period for people who relocate there. So it's actually a curious thing to see how those two uh, align. On top of that, I think for Israelis in particular, Portugal is a very natural place to move for two reasons. First of all, it's a very similar culture in many ways. It's a Southern state, it's extremely uh, friendly, uh, people are very social. Uh, it has a very similar vibe between Lisbon and Tel Aviv. At the same time, they're very different. Of course, the cultures are not the same, but there are enough similarities for us to feel home here quite immediately. The second reason is that, uh, as you may know, the Jewish community as a whole is able to be described in separate groups of Ashkenazi, Sephardic, and otherwise, which are testaments to the origins of those Jewish communities. So the Sephardic Jewish community is actually in its original uh, origin from the Iberic Peninsula, from Spain and Portugal and were exiled from here going to all of North Africa and some other Muslim countries uh, about 400, 450 years ago. So with that being the case, Portugal and Spain uh, came out with the um, idea to right their wrongs and attract back this population to uh, renationalize them and to provide citizenships for a lot of the people who are now Israeli citizenship holders. So that is one more reason for a lot of people from Israel to move to Portugal 
in the recent 10 to 15 years. Right. So you have uh, mentioned a couple of different Jewish diasporas. And uh, when you were speaking about the people who were uh, living in the Iberian Peninsula uh, until the 1600s, uh, we also, I have read that uh, they had a specific language that they have spoken, which was sort of a medieval Spanish language and the mix of medieval Spanish and Hebrew, and it was called Ladino. Correct. Which is which sounds very uh, similar to Latino. I don't know if there's a, if it's a cognate or not, but uh, it's very easy to remember. So it was more of a Spanish language with the with a lot of influence from Hebrew. Similarly, like Yiddish was a Germanic language with a lot of influence from Hebrew and uh, other Slavic languages as well. So uh, a question from me, because I'm not very well versed in the Semitic languages or languages that are connected to Hebrew, would a Hebrew speaker, modern Hebrew speaker, let's say, understand a Yiddish person or a person that speaks Ladino? Do you think these languages would be mutually comprehensible or would they, would they just not understand it? It's just the script that remains. Correct. So the script is probably the only thing connecting modern Hebrew to those languages. You may have a few words which you will find understandable, but overall the language itself is almost fully Germanic in the case of Yiddish and Latin in the case of Ladino. So actually in uh, the process of obtaining a Portuguese citizenship as a Sephardic uh, Jew, you would normally have to prove some document belonging to your family uh, existing, which was written in Ladino. So since so many years have passed since the exile of Jewish people from the Iberic Peninsula, uh, the only uh, way to prove something of that nature would be a marriage certificate of your great grandparents at some point uh, written in Ladino, because that would be the only thing carried throughout generations long enough for you to still be able to produce some proof that you belong to that community. So language was a very essential part in that proof process, because that was almost the only thing that carried on throughout so many generations, even with people moving to North Africa, where other languages have been spoken within the community itself. For a very long time, the original language that Jewish people in the Iberic Peninsula used have been kept. In terms of modern Hebrew speakers understanding ancient uh, Hebrew languages, this uh, is even a challenge when it comes to the Bible script itself. So even though uh, most uh, Jewish schools in Israel are completely secular and non-religious, the Bible as a very big part of the culture of the nation itself is still a mandatory subject at school, but taught from a secular point of view. So while reading those ancient scripts, you would kind of have a feeling like you understand about 50 to 60% of it, yet still would need a transcription and uh sort of translation into modern Hebrew for you to get a full grasp of the written word in each Bible um, paragraph you would be reading. Yet, is the script still the same or the script has changed from, let's the say, biblical Hebrew? completely the same. Completely the same. It has remained as it was. Wow. The alphabet okay. is, yes. Oh, that's pretty amazing. That, uh, it, that feels a little bit like uh, the story about uh, the Arabic scripts, which has changed over time, but uh, not as much. So it would not be comprehensible, at least in reading, although they're actually similar to Greek in some ways. You, you might read an ancient Greek text, although the meaning would be lost probably. Like uh, the, the, how the words were put together, it, it would, would sound super, very odd for a modern Greek speaker. And some of the words have changed meanings as well over time. So you would feel like that word doesn't belong in the sentence. Like what, what does it mean? What should it mean? So when you're speaking about the transcription from 
biblical or ancient Hebrew to the modern one, probably it's a similar situation there as well, from what I understand. Definitely. And you would have a lot of expressions, which would be expressions used in biblical times, which would not be used in a day-to-day -day modern uh, Hebrew language, but we would borrow from it to basically elevate our language in uh, occurrences when you're writing something in depth or want to express yourself in a more higher kind of literate way. And uh... You have mentioned that, at least for the Ladino speakers, the ancient Ladino speakers, language is super important because even in the current day, that's the only way to show your heritage. If you want to obtain a citizenship or just because you want to prove your family tree, your ancestral tree. Uh, but in general, for a different kind of Jewish people, is language a very important part of their heritage? Or is it something more like functional? Uh, are people very connected to the language they speak? Or it's just like some kind of a tool that they use? I think uh, the revivement of the Hebrew language uh, has really been put forward by the creation of the State of Israel. So it was a dying language beforehand, which was completely recreated with the notion of we need the language to unify us as people. And there have been deliberations whether the state should be uh, speaking the Ashkenazi Jewish language, which is uh, Yiddish or Hebrew. And by a slight number of votes, uh, Hebrew was chosen. And in a way, it does bring you back to the ancient times where the Jewish people were united and it creates the same notion with basically a country of immigrants connecting everyone under the same cultural heritage, which begins with the language itself. So how far back in time should we go to get to the point where the Jewish people were united? What, what age, what century, more or less, would that be? Wow, good question. I'm not sure I'm equipped with a good answer, but I would say 3,000-ish years. Yeah, I think so too. From what I have read, uh, it's more like 1,500 BC, so something in that period. So so that oh, was a long time 3, ago. around 3,000 something years, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's very interesting because to be honest, I don't know enough about Jewish history to also comment on that, but... Uh, from what I understand, it has to do something with the Aramaic people uh, and the Aramaic language as well, because uh, after some time it had influenced the Hebrew language to an extent, and you can even find maybe 1% of the Bible written in Aramaic, whereas the 99% is written in ancient Hebrew. So probably the migration of the Jewish people began around the Aramaic era somewhere around that time. But the variety of the languages that have developed ever since is great because you can find Jewish people in all countries, like uh, even in Lithuania. As I've been listening to Timothy Snyder's book about the reconstruction of nations, I knew that we had a really large population of Jewish speakers in the Middle Ages. And uh, I, I knew this fact, but I didn't know how large the population was. So it was so large that 40% of Vilnius speakers uh, was actually Hebrew. They, they, they were Jewish people. Well, they were not Hebrew speakers. They were, I presume they were Yiddish speakers. Yes. And right. uh, for many people, honestly, the terms Yiddish and Hebrew are sort of like synonyms. Like, uh, just like when people think about uh, Arabs and Muslims. Uh, these two terms mean two different things, but for in many people's minds, they mean the same thing. So I presume that when we, people hear the word Yiddish or Hebrew, they just imagine that it's the same language, the same people, which is in fact not true. So maybe you can actually put some light on what, what are the differences between, let's say, the Yiddish language or the people who had spoken Yiddish and the Hebrew language? 
So the modern Hebrew language is basically the revivement of the old Aramaic-based uh, biblical language you, up, adapted for our modern world. And it has been in use only during the past 70, 80 years of the existence of the state of Israel and uh, what, what was uh, leading up to that. Yiddish was the most spoken Jewish language beforehand, uh, specifically in Central and Eastern Europe. And even my grandparents and great-grandparents would know or speak Yiddish to some extent, and definitely the older generations. With uh, some large uh, communities, both in Israel and outside of Jewish people, uh, who are more on the religious side, still keeping their communities Yiddish-based. So if you go to an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood in New York or Jerusalem, you would still hear a lot of people speak Yiddish on a daily basis, that being their native tongue and using Hebrew as their second language or not even speaking Hebrew at all. So it's a very well-preserved language, although it's not in an, any official use in the state of Israel itself, it is definitely in massive use in the Jewish uh, community, in the Jewish world. Uh, but you have also mentioned that it's in a way a dying language. It is. So it is disappearing. And uh, is it because of modern Hebrew, just because it's a state language and most people now learn and study and speak modern Hebrew and Yiddish is kind of becoming obsolete with time and being replaced with modern Hebrew? Yes. So in the general sense, uh, on the general scope of the Jewish population, especially in Israel, Yiddish is completely not in use. So we're in two, three generations ago, nearly every Jewish person would speak Yiddish. Nowadays, it's nearly every Jewish person doesn't. And that being said, well, with Yiddish being a Germanic language and very similar to German, uh, for obvious historic reasons, I think that was part of the reason uh, the state of Israel chose to transition uh, into modern Hebrew instead. While being a dying language, uh, Yiddish is still, as I said, very widely used in the Orthodox Jewish communities, both within Israel and uh, the United States and the rest of the world, but it is not much in use beyond it. Right. And when we think about the Jewish people, and uh, now there's uh, a country that is specifically that represents the Jewish population in the modern national sense as well. So, so, but still, when all people gather together, are there still some differences because of like where the people had come from, their ancestry, the geography of the... So if we take the Jewish community and look from within, uh, do you still see each other as the same people or do you see each other like more like maybe like cousins in some sense historically? So how, how do you look uh, into people who used to, let's say, speak Yiddish or used to speak Ladino their ancestors maybe have come from the Iberian Peninsula, maybe from Eastern Europe, maybe from Africa. Uh, is that important uh, when you relate to each other or that's uh, irrelevant, maybe just interesting as, uh, you know, historical inquiries? I think in that sense, the modern Hebrew is the way for us to gather all those communities into one. So it's a very big melting pot uh, for all those different cultures because myself and my family born in Ukraine and migrated to Israel at the age of five myself has transitioned into that new culture 
And one of the key factors of integration has been learning that language. And we were not the only generation to have that. Every generation uh, coming from different continents had to adhere to the same uh, process. So in a way, modern Hebrew is a language tool to unite uh, all those tribes reconciling. That being said, the cultures are extremely different and definitely you would even feel how people from different parts of the world who have been first uh, generation immigrants into Israel would almost behave differently when they would use a different language. So the cultures sometimes are so far apart that you would be a little bit more spontaneous and um, doing things on a whim when you would think of them in Hebrew, because that's the cultural heritage uh, of the country that speaks that language. While if you were conducting the same conversation in Russian, which would be the language for many people coming from post-Soviet states to Israel, even if it was Ukraine or Lithuania or any other state they would migrate from, uh, you would almost feel like the same people would be a bit more reserved, a bit more planning, a bit more um, different to what they would be if they would speak the language of the country they have just moved to. So a language a person would use would definitely make a switch in their mind to the culture behind that language as well. Even the way that some things would be described would be different. So uh, unstable situation would have been looked at way more in a chill way if it's spoken about in Hebrew. And it might be a bit more dramatic and a big deal if you would speak about it in Russian, because again, the differences in the background of those languages would make its impact. And uh, yes, definitely the whole country is a big melting pot of uh, very different cultures which have been mashed together and now are kind of one, but not really, because you still have a lot of the dynamics uh, unique to the heritage and background that you would have. And in fact, for many people, that keeps this migration mentality, because even speaking for myself personally, coming from one type of culture, migrating to a very opposite type of culture, you kind of realize there is a range here, which you feel mm -hmm. tangibly by your own private experience. And then it makes you think, where am I on that range? So you have a lot of connection to one, you have a lot of connection to the other, but you kind of feel you're not exactly either of those extremes. So now where am I on that spectrum? And that makes a lot of the uh, first generation uh, immigrants think of adjusting to a new country to find a perfect spot in that range, which represents themselves. And definitely you see a big um, trend of migration from those communities, especially the one I belong to, so Jews, from Ukraine who migrated to Israel at some point also have tried moving to other locations around the world. That's very interesting. And uh, so when you're thinking about yourself, like uh, your own circumstances and your own character and your own backgrounds, and when you were trying to balance the different poles of the mentalities, let's say, between the post-Soviet Ukraine and uh, modern Israel, uh, you actually arrived at Portugal. <laughs> so, so in a way, is a Portugal a meeting ground? Is, is it the for you the right balance between these two? I definitely think so. I think Portugal is this perfect combination of a Southern mentality of uh, open, friendly, social, uh, open arms kind of mentality while having its very European and polite and uh, ordered kind of society. 
So I would feel it's like the perfect middle ground. And so from what I know, you, well, you have also mentioned that uh, for you, it's very important to have close friends not that far away from you. That's why you have actually started this whole digital nomad movement in Madeira, even though maybe it was already kind of pre-existing in the mainland, but uh, on, on the island, it was a new thing. Um, what about the local people? Because uh, let's say for me, I interact quite a lot with uh, local Madeiris and uh, also Brazilians, uh, which is, of course, another population that is prevalent here. And uh, I have noticed this a very interesting and odd thing because they definitely are friendly. They're very polite. Uh, they even appear to be like very open hearted and open arms. But to actually to make a friend with a uh, local Madeiris is not easy. It's like uh, uh, there, there is a little bit of a distance between. So, so there's that reserved part of their nature, which I wouldn't find that much in a Spanish person, let's say. So I cannot compare with uh, people from the mainland. Maybe it's more like an island thing because always when there's a, a country and there are islands, uh, the people, the, their culture is a little bit different and their way of interacting between each other. So like when I went, went to Porto Santo and I talked with uh, the owner of the hostel, he explained to me that uh, in the past they were often raided by pirates. And uh, for that reason, they were very aware of other people coming to their islands. And in a way, at least in his mind, uh, that's how the local people still see others. And he comes from the mainland. I think he comes from Lisbon, if I'm correct. And even for him to become friends with the locals of the Porto Santo Island, it was hard. Like uh, when they, they would, let's say, uh, bring their kids together to play, uh, they wouldn't even invite him into the home for the first times, you know? So, so he, he was like, okay, you can leave your kid, but you stay away. <laughs> and it took some time for them to actually build a relationship uh, of uh, mutual trust. And I believe then after a while, the relationships become actually strong and, and you know, the friendships last. So I don't know how much experience have you had uh, with the local community. And also in the same, uh, on the same question, on the same line of thought, how do you feel when you hear the Portuguese language? Because you come from a background of, let's say, people who spoke Russian, people who spoke uh, Hebrew, you also know English. I know that you have a way of comprehension in Spanish and Ukrainian as well. So you're well-versed with languages. Uh, how does Portuguese sound for you? I remember one of the first times that I heard the Portuguese language. It was way before I ever traveled to Portugal. And I was very tired in the airport of Zurich waiting for a flight. Uh, and I was thinking that I'm hearing people behind me speaking in Russian, which I'm a native speaker of, and I couldn't understand the word. And I thought maybe <laughs> I have hallucinations because of how tired I am. So I was a bit worried about myself. So I approached those guys and asked them, excuse me, where are you from? Just to confirm that I'm not going crazy. And they said, Portugal. I'm like, Portugal? That that was Portuguese. It sounds so much like Russian or any other Slavic language with the same sounds, the same phonetics, that I feel like, at least from the standpoint of pronunciation, having that background definitely helps with learning uh, Portuguese. In fact, when you speak with the locals about their perception of how Portuguese is for other foreigners, they would normally say, well, it's such a hard language to learn because it's well, so hard to pronounce things as we do. And I always was thinking to myself, no, actually, it's a very simple pronunciation, but it's because of having that phonetic background of a different language that uses the same sounds, the same expressions, the same uh, utilization of uh, how you speak. So definitely uh, doesn't feel foreign, although it has nothing to do uh, with Slavic languages, like generally speaking, uh, 
it's basically like making Spanish sound a little bit Slavic. That's how it feels from my perspective, having some background in both Spanish and Russian. Well, from my understanding, probably it has to do more with the relationship with the Arabic world. And uh, probably it's uh, the influence of the Arabic language on the Portuguese language. Of course, there are some influences in Spanish, but uh, in this regard, I feel like, especially when we think about Algarve, which was uh, for a while uh, occupied by the caliphs of Islam in the Middle Ages, uh, probably it had some influence also regarding phonetics. And uh, for my friends from the US that uh, also reside here for the same reason, because uh, it's they also said that it's fairly easy to get uh, residency here, whereas it's much harder to get residency elsewhere. So for the people that have chosen to migrate to Madeira or to Portugal from US, uh, Portuguese is definitely notoriously difficult. And when they try to speak it, it does seem like they're speaking Spanish <laughs> just because <laughs> just because uh, the English language do does not have some phonetics like Exactly. And those are exactly the phonetics that you would have in Russian, for example, or Polish yeah, uh, or Ukrainian. Yeah. Yeah. All also Lithuanian uh, and Czech. Uh, you know, so Absolutely. it's uh, yeah. it's very common in the Balto-Slavic world uh, or in the Central European, uh, Central and uh, Eastern Northern Europe. Uh, whereas for people that come from another linguistic background, of course, it's a tough one. So, but uh, have you ever felt the need to learn the Portuguese language? Because I have been dabbling with it for a year. I think I have reached the level uh, where I can, you know, uh, order some food and, you know, speak about the training session post-training or, you know, have a very short conversation with a taxi driver or my hairdresser. So it's nothing spectacular, but uh, most of the time I feel like I force them to speak with me in Portuguese, whereas they just uh, start speaking to me in English and I <laughs> and I speak to them in Portuguese, which is kind of feels like it's the other way around. <laughs> so so I will, have you ever felt a need there? Yeah. I will tie up the answer to that to a previous point that you brought about connection with the locals, because I think it has a lot to do with one another in a counterintuitive way, to be honest. So as a traveler, and as I said, I was a traveler full time for over 15 years. So I was very used to jumping from place to place and building a new social circle and creating a whole new life for myself where almost developed a biological clock of three months where life starts, develops and ends in those three months and a new life begins. So connecting with the people and environment around me almost became like a muscle that for 15 years I've been trained to do uh, traveling solo by the way so that makes it even more uh, prominent in how important that is to keep contact with uh, the environment around you so I actually do have close and uh, good friendships with locals and I think it's due to the fact that the locals I spent most of my time with and I have connected with are locals with similar background to my own in two important aspects. One is how worldly they are and that has a lot to do with how confident and comfortable they feel in communicating in English. So due to the fact that initially when I came here, I obviously didn't speak uh, any Portuguese and I was always keen on connecting with interesting people. The first natural connections with locals have been with locals who have traveled the world, lived mm -hmm. elsewhere, maybe relocated back to Portugal or relocated from the mainland to Madeira and have had this background of travel and worldliness which made us naturally connect, which made us naturally similar to one another. 
The other aspect is the entrepreneurial aspect. So since I am an entrepreneur myself, I have a company, I run it, I have employees, I have uh, a lot of dealings with other entrepreneurs in my business. Those are the people I feel the most natural connection with. So I would also connect with other entrepreneurs in Madeira or elsewhere in Portugal. So since normally entrepreneurs in Portugal would be Portuguese people who have gone somewhere else, gained some knowledge, gained some experience and brought it back to their country to start something new, again, those would be people that I would be naturally speaking English with. So I think that is true not only for Portugal, that is true for most of the world. If you go to Bali or Australia or New Zealand and you run into a person from Germany, Netherlands, Italy or Lithuania, those would be the most interesting people from their own countries for you as a traveler who's on the same pathway as them to meet because you have so much in common. And if you go to Germany, Netherlands, Italy, or Lithuania on your own directly and try to connect with the local population, it will also not feel as natural and as easy as it would be with those people you met outside of their natural habitat. So that's why I kind of not tried or not built a lot of expectations in connecting with locals for the sake of connecting with locals, but I have been um, aware of the importance of the similarity between our mindsets uh, as it is naturally with any person to be able to connect deeper. And I think since Portugal specifically is such an immigration friendly country, uh, which for many years and decades lived uh, in conjunction with the tourism industry and has welcomed a lot of people traveling here. English is a very easy language to survive on without the need to speak anything else. In fact, I believe the oldest existing uh, security agreement in the world is between Portugal and the UK. So the ties between the countries are so robust that English almost feels like a natural second language in the country. And specifically in Madeira, which is such a tourism-oriented community, it almost has been a survival requirement for the locals to speak great English to be able to connect with the people they want to provide services or goods. Uh, throughout, I mean, the economic existence of this, uh, of this place as a touristic destination. So it almost is tempting to just keep using English since it makes things easier for not only you as an English speaker, but for the locals who don't want to bother speaking with you in broken version of Portuguese and want to communicate quickly and efficiently an idea they have, and that would be easier for them to do in English. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't think that you should learn the language of the country you're living at. It's definitely beneficial. It has a lot of upsides, but on a day-to-day -day basis, it almost feels like both sides are better served by just speaking the language they speak best. And it's extremely easy to survive in Portugal without speaking a word of Portuguese. Well, not so long ago, uh, last weekend, I had a conversation with a man by the name Tassal. Uh, he, is, he will be actually the guest uh, of the next show that's going to be released. Or maybe by the time of this recording is done, the show has already been released. And uh, he is a Garu speaker from the northern side of India. And uh, I had a question for him, like, how do people, what kind of language do they use in India to communicate between different sides? Because uh, let's say more Indo-European based languages are spoken in the North, whereas more like Dravidian based languages are speaking in the South. So there's Sanskrit and Tamil, there's also Hindi, 
like how do people communicate to each other if the languages are so different and not mutually comprehensible so his answer was actually actually it's english <laughs> you know like uh, as uh, even though they have a colonial history which is uh, also a very sensitive topic uh, the English language actually helps different people from different uh, backgrounds to actually share conversations because it's the easiest language for everyone to learn and to speak. And uh, I, I found it very interesting in this kind of regard that uh, it is actually like the glue that keeps uh, some people together in some regards. And uh, I'm not, you know, in any kind of way putting the English language above other languages as a superior language. I just think that actually grammatically and in the process of learning it, it's actually an easy language to learn. Uh, the structure is not difficult as well. Uh, and uh, if you, let's say, take French, if you take uh, Hebrew, if you take Hindi and you take English, if I ask someone which probably would be the easiest to learn, well, most people would agree that it would be English actually. So, so probably it, it has the same purpose in Portugal as well. And I remember the first day that I came here and uh, I took a taxi from the airport to our home and uh, I was talking with the taxi driver and he said that he speaks six languages. Well, I do not know if he was telling me the truth. And at first, to be honest, I was doubting it. But the more I spoke with people here, I realized that actually because of the tourism industry and all because of other circumstances, people do learn different languages, especially if they're working as a taxi driver in hotels and so on. So, so definitely a multilingual place to be. So if people love languages, I guess and don't want to pay heavy taxes. <laughs> it's a great place to be and to, to actually live. But on the same note, uh, I do have a question for you as a person that has come to live in Madeira with a background of living in many different locations, many different kind of countries. For you personally, what do you feel is lacking here? Like, uh, do you think that if that kind of a thing or, I don't know, service or something existed in Madeira, that it would make it better? And also, on the same note, how do you imagine that it's going to develop, let's say, in a decade, in 20 years? Do, do you see uh, the direction where the island is going? I think we are experiencing a unique time in Madeira's history. It's a very uncommon thing to see a birth of a new place, which is not in a developing country, which is not in a very distant part of the world, but is connected to the heart of Europe. It's part of the European Union. Madeira might be one of those rare cases where what we see today has never existed before. It has not been the case as far as three years ago. And this is, this is literally the initial step before this things takes, takes acceleration. So in particular, I'm talking about how young entrepreneurs are coming here, how interesting individuals uh, on a global scale some of my friends living in Madeira are people you may read about in Forbes, Financial Times, uh, founders of uh, Fortune 500, well, managers of Fortune 500 companies and founders of startups which are very prominent uh, in Silicon Valley. And you would never expect them to choose a place uh, so distant and so little known, and yet they do and move here permanently, creating their own little communities, bringing more of those interesting people in. So in a sense, what's missing in Madeira is something that is being replenished right now, is something that is already having its momentum. So we need more interesting people. We need more um, 
small communities, uh, we can't just rely on being one community of digital nomads. As great as that is as a start, I think we're at the stage where we evolve into many little tribes, many little communities. We have people utilizing how accessible nature in its rawest form is to any city center in Madeira and create communities to be in touch with that nature, which is such a rare thing anywhere in mainland Europe where to be in real raw nature, you have to be so far from any city center that it makes you almost disconnect from civilization. Here, you can reconnect to nature while having a complete uh, connection to the city as well. Definitely, Madeira is still lacking some uh, major things, but I think it's part of its appeal. It's not a rival mm -hmm. to Lisbon. It's not a rival to London. It's its own thing. And to be a global person, you do need to have access to those big cities every now and then, but you can still make Madeira your base and create your vision for a completely new reality around yourself because it's so allowing for those ideas to come to be. Just as my idea has been to bring a community of uh, really interesting individuals to live together in this distant place and co-create, now other people are doing similar things and creating their own reality here. Well, if you think cinema, we definitely are missing some of the greatest movies and uh, you need to fly to Lisbon to see them. If you think of culture, you might lack some shows, but in a very funny coincidence, I was um, invited to a comedy show in uh, Lisbon uh, that was uh, organized by a very famous comedian. And uh, he chose to make his appearance in Portugal only in Lisbon. But funny enough, he permanently lives in Madeira. So oh. some of the oh. most uh, prominent people who do move to Portugal eventually settle down here. And if you want to meet them in a very informal way, because also it's so easy to connect with other foreigners in a small location like Madeira, where everyone can connect solely on the fact that they have decided to live in this middle of nowhere island, uh, not being from here, rather than uh, passing someone like that on the street in Lisbon and having no reason to connect at all. So while it misses some things, I think it could be part of its charm. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we need those things to appear for them to uh, make Madeira better. It's uh, definitely something I see coming up in the future, but I think it's already good enough. And now it's just time to see and be a part of that development further. Cool, very cool. And uh, because I want to respect your time, uh, I only have maybe one more question or two more. And one of them is about Azores. So when people think about islands that belong to Portugal, they, if they know something about geography, they might remember that there is Madeira, which is not as, fam as famous as Tenerife or Grand Canaries uh, for, for Spain. But many people don't even know that somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, there is an archipelago of islands called Azores, which in some local people's minds, they say it's either like Madeira 20 years ago, Madeira 50 years ago, you know, it can depend, but most of the locals actually compare it to Madeira. And uh, I don't know if you have visited uh, the Azores before. Uh, what was your experience there? Uh, just being in the place, feeling the environment, uh, being surrounded by people and so on. And do you feel like Azores will experience a similar development as Madeira does now in the future? Or maybe this kind of a new wave of people coming to live and, uh, you know, bring their own talents into the place will not happen in Azores. Like, this is just like a prediction or a gut feeling. How do you think it's going to continue there? 
I have visited the Azores uh, for about a month. I definitely was curious to see how different it is and how is it in general. And I feel like there are a bunch of reasons why the Azores can never be the same as Madeira. The most obvious one is the extra hour of difference uh, in terms of time zones between mm-hmm. the Azores and uh, mainland Portugal, the UK, etc. cetera. Uh, but a bigger part of it is actually the conditions. It's way smaller in terms of population, so it doesn't feel it has enough, just enough to be able to have that initial kickstart of a community. Uh, of foreigners. The second uh, part of it is the weather. It's not as giving as Madeira's, so it's colder. And it's a little bit less dramatic in terms of nature. So if you go to Madeira, you can experience a wide variety of very diverse uh, landscapes in a very short distance from one another. If you go to the Azores, it's absolutely stunning, but in a way calmer Windows XP background sort of way. (laughs) A lot of grass, a lot of blue skies or gray skies if you come in the wrong season, but not as many dramatic landscapes. So from the standpoint of nature, I think Madeira winds, climate, Madeira winds, time zone, Madeira winds. And population, which is the key factor, I think is just that too small in the Azores. I would have loved to have two options and to give both of them a fair chance. And uh, I think just one definitely stands out. So probably one worth visiting, another worth relocating. Both are worth visiting. And I think Madeira is easier on relocation without feeling a complete disconnection from the rest of the world. It has more direct flights. It has more direct connections. It can be as easy to fly from here to London, Prague, Dublin, or Berlin as it is from Lisbon. You can't say the same about the Azores. Cool. And uh, for the people who would like to reach out to you and, you know, just maybe ask some questions regarding uh, relocation, maybe some questions uh, about uh, your company, uh, just for the people who would like to reach out, how could they connect with you? So they could either visit our website at untax.com uh, or write us at uh, contact at untax.com with their specific uh, case. Uh, you can easily book a 15-minute free call with us on our website to just see if we could help you and how. And usually, for most people we work with who choose to relocate to Portugal, we can guarantee a 0% tax legally, of course, for a period of 10 years in a very cost-efficient manner. Now, we're launching our course for people who want to self-assess and self-propel uh, themselves forward, but we also offer a full hands-on experience where we deal with everything for yourself. In terms of moving to other countries, we work with a variety of different locations. We move people all around the world, from all around the world, and deal with locations such as Malta, Gibraltar, Cyprus, Indonesia, and the list goes on. But I definitely see a trend of a lot of people from both from both North America and Europe choosing Portugal as their home. And I can clearly see why, as I chose it for myself, and I am uh, in that space. So we'll be glad to help. And uh, definitely your viewers uh, will have a special treatment, as you can see probably in the description. So... Uh, yeah, we're keen on helping people who want to relocate, who want to become global. Cool, cool. And what what are the future plans for you? Like, uh, is there something in your mind uh, that you would like to maybe do, uh, to work on? Uh, maybe there are some new projects that are coming up, or maybe just life will continue on as it is going and you are going to move in the same direction where you are moving. So... 
What are your future plans? I think there is a huge opportunity in letting that knowledge that a lot of my clients um, share with me in private be accessible to people around the world. I speak with some of the smartest, some of the highest achieving people in the world on a daily basis. And one of the things that I was hoping to do, and part of it has to do with Madeira as well, is bring those people every week to Madeira to have an interesting conversation with, to have a podcast around not the tax aspect of what we do, but to focus on our clients' uh, core essence of business for them to share how they became who they are, how they reached the points where they have a business that allows them to work remotely and be location independent and prosperous uh, with case studies ranging all the way from crypto entrepreneurs to uh, artists creating fonts and selling them. So the case studies are so interesting. That is probably my next project to make that bridge between those entrepreneurs and the people who can enjoy their genius. Wow. Well, I'm looking forward to that. That seems like it would be a very interesting and worthwhile project. So if it ever comes online, uh, I hope I'm going to be one of the first people to hear about it, whether we meet by the vending machine or maybe just by text. <laughs> Absolutely. No question about it. So thanks, Bogdan. Thanks for sharing your knowledge, uh, your experience, and also your perspective on uh, many key aspects that I also find important and interesting. And I hope that uh, our audience has uh, found it interesting as well. Thank you for having me and it was a pleasure. So in that case, if something new comes up, uh, let's uh, hope for round two. Absolutely. Uh, but for now, I guess until next time. Until next time. <laughs>